Preferred Capital Funding presents the Result Podcast, a podcast where trial lawyers share a recent verdict or settlement and discuss how they achieved the result. The Result Podcast is brought to you by Preferred Capital Funding. PCF provides loans to your clients, all while providing the highest level of customer service and continuing to be 100% attorney referral based. If you have a client in need of a loan, please contact me at jason at pcfcash.com. Now let's hear from attorney Sidney McClafferty of Geyser, Bowman and McClafferty in Columbus, Ohio, about how PCF has been able to serve her and her clients. My clients have greatly appreciated having an attorney who has the resources to meet their needs quickly. PCF is a fast and accessible resource for my clients, allowing me to provide solutions to their most urgent concerns, whether that be funding for continuation of health insurance or money to replace a car so they can return to work. It's truly been a lifesaver for some. Today, the Result Podcast is happy to welcome Stuart Channon and Ariel Olstein of Channon and Olstein, located in Lincolnwood, Illinois. Stuart is a trial lawyer with more than 25 cases tried to his credit and has been rated an Illinois super lawyer since 2005. Ariel has packed extensive legal experience into a five-year period since becoming a lawyer in 2016, so much so that Ariel was named to the 2021 Illinois Super Lawyer Rising Star List, which recognizes the top 2.5% of young attorneys in the state of Illinois. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank Jason. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you, Jason. So as we do with every episode of there's start at the end, you guys want to share with me what the numeric outcome of your case was? Sure. Uh, about uh, a little longer than four years ago, our client, Dion Patrick, got a jury verdict of thir- uh, 13 point, I always get that number, $13.4 million, 13.3 compensatory and just under 100,000 in punitive damages. And then we were in a long appellate process for four years and fighting about attorney's fees. But uh, Dion's ultimate number was $17 million. Tell us about the case. Well, this is a, just a sad and tragic case. It um, started in 1988. And uh, sadly, two people were murdered. Um, and the police could not, uh, in, um, on Agatite in Chicago and the, the police could not solve the crime. So what they did is they brought in a bunch of young kids and basically put the case on them, coerced them, uh, psychologically coerced them, locked them in rooms, dark rooms for a very long time. Um, and then started collecting names of, of basically what the police viewed as the troublemakers in the neighborhood. Uh, before long, there were, there were seven young kids aged approximately 16 to 21, all of whom were being charged with this double murder. One or two got out early on. One, one had his confession suppressed by a judge. Another they let go. Uh, but in the meantime, our client, Dion Patrick, uh, was convicted at a jury trial and sentenced to uh, life in prison uh, without parole. When we got the case, uh, we, we joined a team of some other lawyers, each of whom had uh, different defendants, and we started working on proving uh, Dion's innocence. Sort of cutting to the chase, um, we were able through post-conviction proceedings to prove that, that uh, Dion was innocent, that he had been framed, 
Uh, we proved that fabricated evidence had been used against him. We proved that the uh, confessions had been coerced. And um, ultimately, we got uh, the, uh, the court uh, and the state's attorney uh, to vacate the convictions of, the, uh, of Dion Patrick. You know, at that point, we brought our civil rights case and Dion was out, very joyous occasion. I remember being frustrated we could not get Dion out by Christmas. And I think he walked out of prison on January 10th, if I remember correctly. And we threw him a Christmas party near the uh, beginning of February because uh, he had missed Christmas that year. And when I stood up to make a a non-alcoholic toast to him, uh, I realized he had missed 21 Christmases had been taken away from him, not just the one we missed in terms of getting him out. And, you know, that was a just that was just a really, really sad moment to think uh, about the wasted years that he was forced to spend in prison. But shortly after that, we brought a civil rights case. And and uh, uh, short, shortly after that, we turned to preferred capital funding to try to get some money in Dion's pocket so that he could survive during the what at that what then we thought was two or three years he would need to hold on before he had some money from the case turned out to be seven years and we just you know we just knew that this was a situation where without some financial help uh he would struggle like any like any uh, ex-convict struggles, and especially one who was innocent the whole time. So we're very grateful, very grateful for PCF for that. We start the lawsuit and, you know, like any lawsuit, uh, the the police officer defendants, the city, uh, they all uh, (laughs) prolong the thing as long as possible. Um, It was a very complicated case. Uh, we got past summary judgment. We got it in front of a jury. Uh, we had a, a 10 day, actually, is that right? No, I'm sorry. A six day pretrial conference with the judge going through all the motions in limine, going through all the documents, numerous motions to exclude evidence. Uh, and after those six days, we started the jury trial. Uh, it went uh, about four full weeks uh, and we were just very grateful to get a uh, 13 and $13.4 million judgment for Dion. Let's back up just a little bit before the trial. So you have Dion, you've gotten him out of jail. You've now filed uh, the civil suit, which is where I'm going to focus. Kind of walk me through how you prepare for a case, the civil portion of someone being exonerated from a crime they didn't commit. Well, we at that it's a it's a great question we the first thing we did after getting Dion's conviction vacated is there's a procedure that's very unique to Illinois in which we turn to the chief judge of the criminal court of Cook County and say please issue Dion a certificate of innocence the under Illinois law the and I will get to the civil case in a second but under Illinois law, the vacating of the conviction standing alone is not indicative of the uh, defendant's innocence. You need that separate piece of paper from the chief judge called the certificate of innocence. And we got one of those 
uh, for Dion. That then became a centerpiece of the civil case. We needed to tell the story of the way in which the police officer defendants framed Dion and these other young boys. And the case was complicated because it wasn't just a matter of proving that they had framed Dion. Uh, over the course of three days, they uh, obtained seven interlocking confessions. And by interlocking, I mean that young defendant A, uh, in his confession, said B, C, D, E, and F were all present. Young defendant B said A, C, D, E, and so on were all present. Because these um, uh, confessions all told the same story and included the same individuals, we built our case around a fact that you're going to find astounding. After these seven confessions were taken, one of the young kids said, oh, wait a second, what day was this? Oh, I couldn't have been at a gang meeting in the park that day. I couldn't have gone to the Lassiter's apartment and been part of the murder because I was in a Chicago police department lockup at the time this gang meeting, a supposed gang meeting and supposed murder or my involvement in the supposed murder took place. So we built our case around two things. One, that the confessions had to have been fabricated because um, Dan Daniel Taylor was in the lockup at the time these occurred and every single confession said Daniel Taylor was a part of it. The other part was the certificate of innocence. The fact that so that we had gone through the process of proving to the circuit court of Cook County that Dion was in fact innocent. The city, for whatever reason, strategy is always, oh, they did it, they did it, they did it, they did it. They want to distract the jury from the police officer's own misconduct. And, by, and so instead, they try to put the spotlight on the defendant, who's already been found innocent by the, by the uh, criminal justice system, but they still want the jury second-guessing whether maybe this individual was somehow involved. And that's how they build their case. And either they hit a home run with it or it incredibly backfires. And in this case, I think the jury was offended by the, the city's position. When you actually were in trial, you said it was a four-week trial. Kind of was there, I'm always curious as to whether, especially in a case like this, was it just you had it from the beginning? Was there a turning point at trial? Was there a certain fact like the uh, obviously fake confessions. Was there a portion at which you could feel in the courtroom that kind of the courtroom had tilted in your favor? I think, yes. There was one very dramatic moment. One of the things the officers did during the time that they were getting confessions from these young kids, they were drawing maps of the area around the home, around the apartment building where the murder occurred. And they were getting, and, and as part of this story that the police made up, they assigned to the four youngest kids the role of lookout. And they would ask these kids in their confessions, where were you standing lookout? 
And the kids would say, I was at the corner of X and Y or at the corner of one and two. And the police would make them mark on a map where they were standing. The problem is with their map, and they would draw, not draw a line, but there would be a straight line from where the person was standing to the front door. The problem was this was a U-shaped building. And we proved to the jury during cross-examination of one of the detectives, we proved that none of these kids could have seen what they claimed to have seen, that the, that the police coerced them into putting into their confession statements. They could not have seen at the front door of the building what they claimed to have seen because they were blocked by an entire wing of the apartment building. And I asked one of the defendant uh, police officers, the lead detective, in fact, I said, are, are you saying that these kids had x-ray vision, that they, they had, uh, you know, like uh, Superman, they could just see through this big U-shaped building? And we put a big photo of the U-shaped building in front of the juror from the perspective of where they claimed they could have seen the front door. And the jury got it. They understood that this just could not have been true. And I think that was a big turning point uh, in the case. How long was the jury out at the end? Oh, that, you know, you're, you're testing my memory because we've been through three and a half years of an appellate process and a year of fighting with the, with the uh, city. Uh, but let me think, if they were out, I think they were out a day and a, about a day and a half. I think the judge gave them the case midday. They went that half day and then all went home. And then the next day in the mid-afternoon, they announced that they had a verdict. So, you know, give or take uh, maybe 10, 10 working hours as a jury. Once yeah, maybe, the... Maybe eight, maybe about, yeah, about, about seven or eight. Did you have a chance to talk to any of the jurors post-trial? Unfortunately, we did not. Some judges, and especially after a lengthier trial, some judges' attitude is they just don't want the lawyers bothering the jurors any further. They feel like the jurors have already given enough. Other judges understand the value to the lawyers and to the case and to trying these kinds of cases, uh, you know, that there is value in speaking to the jurors after what worked, what didn't work who was credible, who was not credible, um, what, what were the turning points for you, that, those kinds of questions. But we did not have that opportunity in this case. Jason, did you have any? Yep. Go ahead. Jason, if I may interject for a second to circle back to an important point that Stuart was making about Dion's situation after he received the Certificate of Innocence, but before the civil trial on his civil rights claims, I think that one of the things that was very important to Dion, and I know this from other cases in which we've been helped from, we've received help from PCF, is, is the need for funding, the need for being able to, to live your life until your civil rights claim or until the, the litigation uh, reaches a resolution. And I think one of the things that people are not uh, generally aware about is the recidivism rate. We have 83%, according to the latest reports, of state prisoners returning to jail within or prison within nine years of, of their release. And that um, is, of course, even more disturbing when 
the person wasn't uh, incarcerated uh, for a wrongful for a wrongful conviction. Um, so that type of help, that type of funding that PCF offers, and we is critical. It's it's very very important. Stuart and Ariel, did you guys have any offers to trial? We really didn't. Uh, we we tried to get the city uh, to come forward, and uh, and they just didn't. I, I really I never really understood it. I don't know if they thought the case would, was going to be too complicated for the jury to understand. Um, I think there was a very reasonable number that that could have resolved the case, uh, but no, there were basically no concrete offers uh, prior to prior to the trial. There was a a small offer from the Cook County defendants that we took a pass on uh, and that we are always second guess ourselves on that because the AS let out. But uh, no, there was no substantive offer to avoid the trial. A question I like to ask on all of our episodes because uh, the majority of our audience is trialers across the country. What is one tangible thing that you feel like you learned or that uh, you believe in a case like this that you can share with other trial lawyers that they could then apply to some of their cases and or practice? Don't don't underestimate jurors. The collective wisdom, knowledge and wisdom and 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 paying attention of a jury, the collective is extremely high. And if you have confidence that if you tell the jury uh, an important and good story, they'll get it. They'll get the nuances. They'll get the subtleties. They'll pick up your cross-examinations. Just have confidence in your jury because ours was a complicated story. The city threw a lot of crap against the wall. And in the end, we we just knew the jury could sort through it and uh, give Dion a judgment that he deserved. And I would, and Jason, I would add from the perspective of a young lawyer, the importance of sticking to the theme as opposed to being enticed by pieces of evidence that you may want to present um, to the jury that doesn't fall within the theme of the case, because I think that's something that young lawyers uh, make mistakes about, and that's an important lesson as well. Gentlemen, is there anything we missed before we wrap up? No, no. We're really grateful for the opportunity to talk to you about Dion's case, and uh, and as we said during the call, grateful to PCF for the help that they, they made a lot of this possible for Dion. Well, thank you both for taking the time. Congratulations on uh, a wonderful result for your client. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Jason. Thank All you, right. guys. Bye-bye.